Uh, Deepwater Horizon, Macondo, is a beautiful example of this, right? Seven years, seven years of not a single injury on board of a boat because it's a boat, right? The thing floats, right? You can't build legs that long because it's deep water, ha ha. All right, so seven years. Now, how many people working on that boat? 126, all right, on a boat, right? And so not very big. <laughs> it's not very big. We're gradually getting rid of teenagers out of the house. But, you know, at some point we got three kids running around the house. You know what? Three kids, two academics, five people in this house, no pets because it would have been worse. Man, I could not keep my house incident-free for a week. How can you keep a boat with 126 people on it incident-free for seven years? Who is kidding whom? Who is hiding what from whom? That was Sidney Decker. He's a professor at Griffith University where he runs the Safety Science Innovation Lab. And he's raising what appears to be a contradiction. Deepwater Horizon had an incident that killed 11 people and set off an environmental disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. But prior to this happening, it appeared to be an incredibly safe site. They had no incidents for seven years. Now, does this mean this was an incredibly safe facility which then had a massive failure? Or does it mean that accidents were actually happening all along? It's just that no one was reporting them. A man has died after an industrial accident at a coal mine in the state's far north. Now we want to go to that incident in Queensland. The 44-year-old was working 700 metres underground when there was a collapse. This is Rethinking Safety, a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. My name is Sean Brady, and I wrote the Brady Review into fatal accidents in the Queensland mining industry. In this podcast, we'll unpack the findings of the review with the goal to help the Queensland mining industry rethink its approach to safety. You'll hear from leaders in the industry, the regulator, the union, and leading academics and experts in the field of safety. As we ask the question, does an absence of reports mean an absence of incidents? This is episode four, why everything you know about reporting is wrong. So the first thing to say is that the title, Why Everything You Know About Reporting Is Wrong, is clearly a cheeky and controversial title for this episode. But it's appropriate, because it turns out reporting is quite a controversial topic. And why is it controversial? Well, let's start with something that's not controversial. And that's something we spoke about in the last episode. If there's a rising serious accident rate in the industry, then I think you'll agree that this is a bad thing. It means that more people are being killed or being put in hospital. Now, a key aspect of this sort of reporting is that it's somewhat independent of the reporting culture in the industry. It's not possible to hide a fatality and it's very difficult to hide a hospital admission. So while an increase in serious accident rate is bad, do you also feel the same about an increase in the rate of the number of hazards or near misses reported? In other words, do you think that a rising number of reports of hazards at your site is a bad thing? And what about near misses? Incidents where someone could have got hurt but didn't. Do you think that a rising number of reports of near misses on your site is also a bad thing? Now, one interpretation you could make of a rising number of hazards or near misses on your site is that it's becoming more hazardous. If you're getting more reports of more hazards or near misses, then this means there must be more of them about. The site must be getting more dangerous. But that's not the interpretation we're going to examine today. And here's where it gets controversial. Today, 
we look at why receiving more reports of things going wrong can be a good thing. I think one of the hardest things we do face now is trying to get people to understand that a reporting culture and a strong reporting culture is actually a good thing. That's Matt O'Neill from Glencore, who you heard from before in this podcast. And here he is talking about how receiving more reports of things going wrong can be a good thing. But he's also talking about why people don't always see it as a good thing. It's not seen as a positive, it's seen as a negative. And, and trying to get that mindset to change, we've got a long way to go in that space. We're, we're not there yet, and I don't think we will be in the short term. It's, it's an old school way of thinking of things is that if that line's going up, it's bad, and if the line's going down, it's good. Uh, as simplistic as that, we still have that through a lot of the, the places that I report into. In this episode, we're going to unpack why people like Matt think more reports are better than less reports. But before we do, I want to introduce you to a different topic. And this topic is called Drift into Failure. Why do systems drift? Every system always drifts. That's the voice of Sidney Decker again, and he's talking about how drift takes place. We'll come back to how it happens in a second, but before we do, what is drift into failure? So drift into failure happens when an organization gradually makes trade-offs, unwittingly and, and, and many of them unknowingly so, that increase their willingness to accept risk in which they normalize that risk and say, look, we get away with it. There's, there's no negative consequences, so let's do more of this tomorrow. And this can permeate an entire operation. So drift into failure has many features, but it's primarily that complex systems can exhibit tendencies to drift into failure because of uncertainty and competition in their environment. And this drift generally occurs in small steps that people typically don't notice are happening at all. But why does it happen? Because there are multiple forces at work on it all the time. You have to remain economically viable. You have to remain viable in terms of not failing and crashing and burning. You have to remain viable in terms of the workload that you ask people to, uh, to, uh, to perform and, and do for you. So there's a tension here. While organizations in the mining industry may say safety is their first priority, this is not always consistent with their need to produce and be efficient. I asked Sydney about this tension, particularly about those who manage this tension by stating that safety is their first priority. I think the main reason why the statement that safety is our, our, our top priority, or number one priority or first priority is ridiculous is because that's not why you're there. You are not there to be safe. You're there to get stuff out of the ground. You know, I mean, that's that's why you're there. Yes, safety is not irrelevant. You know, and it and 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 if it's not maintained, there may be consequences that are really bad for lots of people, including you. But it isn't your first priority, right? It's one of the goals and values that sort of intrude and and circle around things. And it's this very tension that drives drift into failure. We want to be safe, and we need to produce. But as we produce and nothing bad happens, we normalize what's happening around us and we start to tweak the system to be more efficient. And as it becomes more efficient, we believe we're making things better. But sometimes what we're actually doing is eroding the safety margin around us. But we don't know we're doing that because nothing bad is happening yet. Now, there's a key point here. We don't make these tweaks to the system all in one go, where they'd be very noticeable. We do them in a series of small steps that are not noticeable at all. 
So because there's no obvious negative consequences, we don't necessarily notice that we've made a trade-off that could cause problems in the future. Think about deciding not to wear a seatbelt while driving. The negative consequences of that won't become apparent until you have an accident or you're fined. As people accumulate success, successful outcomes, doing work every day, um, and, and seem to uh, produce no signals of danger, to use Diane Vaughan's word, in what they're doing. Or they, they produce these signals of danger. Oh, that was close to the edge. But they normalize them. Say, well, but I'm still here. It's good, right? And this normalization leads to results that companies like. And so you borrow a little more against the margin every day. And it yields important uh, uh, results because you get more, more product out the ground, right? You're, you're more pr productive, you get more efficiencies, which get rewarded. The organizations like that, right? And not only do companies like this, they can also inadvertently reward people for allowing drift. Here's Sydney again giving a practical example of how this can happen. What happens on the ground is that the, the typically managers reward unknowingly and unwittingly, but rather quite critically, reward people for breaking rules. Let me give you an example. So we were working on this with a site at some point where um, where there was a contractor, a subcontractor, uh, both working for a client organization, uh, digging holes in the ground for some sewerage project. So so they go through the pre-start or the, uh, the, 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 the pre-start checklist for that particular job. And then they're done and it gets filed and then they will still stand around and go, okay, so, uh, what's that? Are you not going to do work? Ah, no, not going to do work because there was another pre-start to do, right? Because they first had to do the client's pre-start and then they had to do the contractor's pre-start and then sometimes they had to do the subcontractor's pre-start because they weren't exactly the same procedures. So they were following all procedures diligently. So far, so good. Then at some point, you know, some supervisors that, that run these jobs, they start to go, oh, man, I mean, the street's got to open up again. And, you know, we're running up against the deadline. And so so they, they decided, you know what? We do one, we pencil whip the others, right? And we barely do one, pencil whip the others. And what happens next? And results start showing up. And all of a sudden, these teams start working faster, right? And they get, they get stuff done. And the managers, you know, they go, wow, man, we want more of that. And they'll become all enthusiastic about it and start in all kinds of ways, culturally, organizationally, psychologically, in terms of the communication uh, to the workforce, start rewarding this procedure-violating behavior because the procedures themselves were utterly senseless. And it's here Sydney highlights the fundamental challenge what happens is that precisely because you reward greater production, you actually ask people to not follow all the rules because you either follow all the rules or have a really efficient system. So now let's go specifically to the Queensland mining and quarrying industry. I asked Rob Jackson, Vice President of Supply for South 32, who you'll remember from our last episode about drift into failure. Yeah, I do like the drift into failure concept. Um, part of it in my mind sort of comes back to the whole concept of desensitisation, where if we're, if we're undertaking activities and everything's going fine, and even though there might be risks there that we're, we're aware of, with time we'll actually stop seeing them, stop feeling them. And, and that's, in my experience, where you know, things happen, whether people get hurt or worse. I asked Rob for an example of how this drift can play out couple that spring to mind is is particularly from a guarding perspective around rotating equipment. 
guards are there for a very clear purpose, obviously, but they can be a real pain in the backside from a maintainer's perspective. They can be quite difficult to remove if they're installed as per the Australian standards and often you know, they will make a maintainer's job more difficult and they'll be inclined to want to make it easier. So then I've seen modifications made to guards in the past that have made the maintenance activities a lot easier and also a lot lower risk but then they've actually introduced a new level of risk um, from the rotating equipment perspective. Here's Peter Newman, Chief Inspector of Coal Mines in Queensland, talking about how he's seen drift play out in practice. My manager gets a group of people together and say, how should we do this task? And then writes a procedure. Coal mine worker goes out into the field to do that. For a short period of time, they'll still have that knowledge. But in a very quick point of time, they'll start to do it based on what they believe the risk profile is when they're undertaking that activity. And ultimately, without verification by the mine manager, their superintendents and supervisors, that activity will start to drift and drift and drift and drift until such time as the coal mine worker is always looking to get the job done as quickly and efficiently as they can. So they will start taking shortcuts. And then the next thing we do, we have an instant because there hasn't been the verification done by the supervisor because the supervisor is sitting behind a computer dealing with all the paperwork. And the problem is that this drift may not be obvious to the organisation unless they are actively checking for it. Here's Sydney again. What we see is what people in most organisations believe is necessary to get stuff done is not what is necessary to get stuff done. All right, work, to use, again, Eric Holnagel's words, work as imagined is not work as done, right? Work as imagined in procedures or in the heads of board members or in the heads of a, of a manager who hasn't been to site for a week, you know, is not how work actually gets done. Now, if you show up, right, and, and, and you do your rounds, perhaps you'll see work as you imagined it because people behave like Boy Scouts for a little while while you're visiting, right? And so we're really good at that. But it, the evidence for how stuff actually gets done glides out of you. And this is really important to understand if you want to get your fingernails behind anything related to drifting into failure. And if you don't check for drift, then you only discover it's happening when something goes wrong. And this is where the human error comes in. Because the system has drifted, it's now brittle. And when the slightest thing goes wrong, like human error, you can get a bad outcome like a fatality. And this happens because the system has drifted so far that all the protections that are needed to keep a person safe have been eroded to the point that they're no longer effective. And we saw this in episode two when we looked at the fatalities and in episode three when we looked at the serious accidents. We saw system failure after system failure. We saw training issues and supervision issues and we saw ineffective controls. Here's Matt O'Neill again sharing his thoughts on drift and how this erosion happens. Yeah, I do think drift into failure is real and we're talking about it in this context for incidents and, you know, fatalities. But I think on all of the things, and for me, it comes back to a simple sort of standards setup that over time we do come become complacent and we're not just talking about safety. We're talking about things that are, that are going well. We tend to say, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll focus on that's going well, we'll leave that alone. But we want to talk about where we could do it differently or how could we do it better. And I think one of the activities that we do to try and reinforce the do wells as well as the do differently is, is let's actually understand why we're being successful and talk about that to make sure that we don't drop that off. Now this episode is all about reporting. So why have we spent quite a while talking about drift into failure? Well, the reason is this. 
Drift into fear occurs in any complex organization, such as a mining company. And there are a number of things you can do to identify where this drift is occurring and manage it. And one of the key things that will help you identify drift is reporting. Reports of hazards, reports of near misses, reports of incidents provide a huge learning opportunity for you to understand the areas where your organization is drifting into failure. These reports provide insights into which procedures don't quite work, or which shortcuts people are taking, or which controls are proving ineffective. All valuable information to identify what's going wrong before it culminates in a serious accident or fatality. So you want the number of hazards and near misses reported inside your organization to increase, because this equals more learning. Be careful here not to fall into a trap. An increase in reports of incidents doesn't necessarily mean there's been an increase in the number of incidents. It may mean that people have got better at reporting. Likewise, a decrease in the number of incidents reported doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a decrease in the number of incidents. Think back to Deepwater Horizon from the beginning of the episode. Here's Sydney again. How can you keep a boat with 126 people on it, incident-free, for seven years, right? I mean, who is kidding whom? Who is hiding what from whom? So what's more likely in your view? Do you think Deepwater Horizon was incredibly safe, but then one day they had a catastrophic incident? Or do you think that their supposed seven-year incident-free streak bred a culture where people didn't report, and by doing so, they hid the signals that they were drifting into failure? Right, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble mining industry. This is how you construct safety. In fact, if it is predictive, it is predictive inversely. What I mean by that and what the data shows us is that if you don't have an incident for a long time, I mean, it doesn't mean that you didn't have an incident. It just means that you're not learning about it because nobody's telling, right? You're going to have a big one. So an increase in reports doesn't necessarily mean your site is less safe. It means you have more visibility into what is actually happening which means you're learning more and can take action to prevent these incidents from causing serious accidents and fatalities. So, for the rest of the episode, let's talk about the current state of reporting in the Queensland mining and quarrying industry. You'll hear about the different types of reports, you'll hear people's thoughts on them, you'll hear about the difficulty in getting people to report, and we'll also talk about how key performance indicators need to incentivize reporting as opposed to driving it underground. And to start this discussion, let's bring in someone who you haven't heard from yet. I am Kate Dupreer. I am the Commissioner for Resource Safety and Health. Now, the primary role of the Commissioner is to advise the Minister on health and safety issues in the industry, as well as monitor the performance of the regulator. Now, because the Commissioner is independent, she's able to promote collaboration and cooperation between all the different industry stakeholders with regards to health and safety issues. I asked the Commissioner for her thoughts on the importance of reporting. One of the culture changes I believe our industry needs to go through is that having bad news go from the coalface up to the boardroom is actually a good thing. And the only way we're going to change that is if we actually empower people to do it and they get the right response and ensure that once the bad news has gone up, that the loop is actually closed, that they actually listen to and the communication and it's back communicated back down to the coalface. Now, from an industry perspective, people will talk about hazard reporting. And from a regulator perspective, you'll hear about high potential incidents. We'll get to that shortly. But the key I want you to focus on here is that you shouldn't really care how the hazards or incidents are reported or what they're specifically called. You should just care that they're actually reported so that something can be done about them. So to start with, 
What is a high potential incident or HPI? Well, the Queensland Mining Safety Legislation defines a HPI as an event or a series of events that causes or has the potential to cause a significant adverse effect on the safety or health of a person. So HPI can be an event that actually hurts someone or can be an event that just had the potential to hurt someone. In other words, a near miss. And here's what Sydney Deckard thinks is really important about this type of information. Another thing that I would definitely underwrite is the idea of uh, reporting and learning from high potential incidents, right? So hypos. Hypos are hugely informative because they got you pretty close to the edge. Now, what we shouldn't do is obsess about the number of them, right? If one company comes uh, to either the regulator or another another body uh, or to their peers and says, well, we had three last month, people go, oh my God, that's really dangerous. Well, <laughs> no, because we're actually learning from them. We're reporting, right? We are, we're telling the stories. Now, one aspect of HBIs that's really important is that most HBIs occur and no one gets hurt. There was just the very real potential for them to get hurt. One way to think of these is that they're free lessons about where things will go wrong in the future. If you have a look at HPIs where you're looking at 80-90% of HPIs, people actually aren't injured, that is our free lessons. And that if we don't learn from those lessons and put change to the critical controls, then the next time it might not be an HPI. Now, the commissioner is making a key point here about HPIs, and we can basically extend it to any form of reporting. These reports are only valuable if you use them to put in place more effective controls. There's no point in reports making you aware of a hazard if you do nothing about it or put in place ineffective controls. And we know from the data reported to the regulator that a large percentage of controls put in place after a HPI are administrative controls. And as we said in the last episode, these are some of the least effective controls available. Now, the commissioner referred to HPIs as free lessons, but there's a catch. And the catch is that people do not like reporting HPIs. And this is a challenge in all industries, not just the mining industry. And there are lots of drivers for this. Here's the commissioner talking about why she didn't report some HPIs earlier in her career. I then started thinking, why did I not report these HPIs? And it came down to three main factors. First of all, it was very difficult to report HPIs. We did not have an easy system underground. Secondly, the last thing you wanted to do when you came up from underground after 12 hours is sit in someone's office filling out lots and lots of paperwork. And thirdly, I believe the culture wasn't there. If you reported an HPI, you can guarantee you would have had all the supervisors in the section for the next week, which is something you didn't want. So looking at that, I think there are some aspects of that in our industry now. Certain of our organisations are obviously doing it better than others, but I definitely think that those three things are still in our industry today. The Commissioner talked about the importance of having the right culture to promote reporting. Here's Stephen Smite, who you'll remember as the President of the Mining Division of the CFMEU, and he's talking about how fear of reporting can be a big driver in preventing people from wanting to report. So with the reporting of HPIs by, by the workers at the coal face, for that to be more effective, for that to actually happen, then it's about making the worker feel empowered. To empower people to report, you're going to have to have that mechanism in there where they feel like they can do it without the fear of reprisal or without losing their job. And we need to be using the HPIs as a real early warning sign to be able to learn from them. 
So now we come full circle back to where we started. We want the reported number of hazards found going up. We want the number of HPIs reported to the regulator going up, specifically HPIs that are not related to an injury. And we want to see these going up because they are all opportunities to learn. If we get no reports, we stop learning. And this is the apparent contradiction in reporting. For some people, an increase in the number of hazards or HPIs reported is bad because it suggests the number of hazards or HPIs have increased which in turn suggests the industry has got more dangerous. And it even extends beyond the industry itself. It extends to the media, the public, and to the political landscape. Here's Matt O'Neill talking about the challenges involved in getting people to see that reports are a good thing. So again, the high potential incidents and the reporting of those and the hazard identification, and even the way that we classify them, that's so important for us to actually have a good picture of what's going on. And Matt elaborates on the consequences we face if we don't get these reports. Yeah, so if you're not actually getting a true picture of what's going on within the industry and within your own organisation or operation, that's probably the most dangerous thing that we can have happen to us. So again, driving reporting underground is, is something that we just can't afford to have as an industry. So what's the regulator's perspective on this type of reporting? Here's Mark Stone, the Chief Executive Officer of Resources, Safety and Health Queensland. Let's be really clear, every high potential incident offers a huge learning opportunity. We as a regulator are not concerned that sites are having HPIs. We are concerned and will be increasingly preoccupied by what are we doing with them? What is the learning opportunity that's coming out of them? So we really want to see high potential incident frequency increasing. It's all about learning from industries that really control hazards well. So you need to achieve the right cultural environment in an organisation to ensure reporting takes place. And what I mean by this is people have to know that the organisation wants reports and that they view them as a good thing. People have to be able to report without fear. In other words, there's what's called psychological safety. And people need to know that they won't be penalised for reporting. But this is not enough. You also need to ensure that the right key performance indicators or KPIs are in place to ensure people are incentivized to report. You can't tell people that safety and reporting is paramount, but then continually reward behaviours contrary to that, like those small procedural violations Sidney Decker spoke about earlier. Take the lost time injury rate, the LTI rate or the TRIFA rate or all the other variations on the theme. Here's Sydney again. The major improvement that we could see in safety in mining in Queensland is for the industry to rip off the wall the sign that says so many days without an incident. It is the most miscommunicative thing that was ever invented. Why doesn't it work? Because it incentivizes people to shut up, to hide things, to not tell and to not learn. It is one of the most visible signs of engineering a learning disability right into the heart of the industry. Don't learn, don't report, shut up, don't tell us anything because we don't want to screw up our winning streak of so many days without an LTI. Because we have rewards hanging off the end of this, right? Not just for you as workers, we'll give you a couple of tinnies, you know, no, but you know, bonuses all the way to the top. It's bad through and through. It, it's the first thing that should be, should be taken off the walls. 
So by saying that you want incident rates to stay below a certain level in an organisation, you're actually saying you want reports of incidents to stay below a certain level. You're sending a clear message that you do not want reports of incidents. You're actually rewarding people for not reporting them as opposed to not having them. And those two things are not the same. And here Matt O'Neill articulates what happens if we get our KPI incentives wrong. I think being able to see those KPIs for what they are and and having things like near-miss reporting and near-hit reporting going up, seeing that as a positive allows us to get a good picture of what's actually going on within our organisation and, you know, trying to drive that down and, and having a continual drive to drive it down tries to cover up, if you like, some of those things. So in terms of how you go about doing it and why it's important, you know, whether you call it a high potential incident or a hazard report or a near hit report or how you actually go about making it simple so people are actually giving you the information, for me, that's the key to be able to actually get the true size of what's going on and, and making sure you actually got a good handle on what's happening in your business. So I think one of the critical things that the Queensland mining and quarrying industry needs to do going forward to embed a culture of reporting into their organisations. And one of the first steps in doing this is to realise that an increasing hazard or near-miss rate where no injuries are involved is actually a good thing because you can learn from these incidents. You can better understand where your organisation is vulnerable and you can better pinpoint where it's drifting into failure. And remember that this information is only valuable if you actually act upon it, if you actually use it to put in place more effective controls. An incident report, such as a HPI, that is accurately reported and properly actioned is a source of danger taken out of the picture. But knowing where your vulnerabilities are and doing nothing to manage them is not particularly useful at all. And building a culture of reporting is not easy. It requires practices and processes in place to ensure your people can quickly and effortlessly report problems. It requires individuals within your company to respond appropriately to what is generally perceived as bad news. It requires an understanding that while people may need to be held accountable, a culture of blame drives reports underground. And you need to ensure that the KPIs you put in place to drive behaviour are designed to encourage, not discourage, reporting. But the benefits a reporting culture brings are huge. It provides you with some of the key information you need to understand what's actually happening in your business and where your next serious accident may be coming from. In our next episode, we change gears. Over the past four episodes, we've focused on where the Queensland mining and quarrying industry has been. But in our final two episodes, you'll hear about where it needs to go. You'll hear about concepts like deference to expertise and a preoccupation with failure. And we'll take our first steps into the world of high reliability organisations. You see this in the construction industry. We've known this from from the late 1980s and early 90s onward, from particularly Finnish and other data um, that shows that construction sites that uh, have fewer incidents kill more people. That says something about the culture, the culture to speak up, the culture to learn, the capacity to reflect and actually improve things. And so this is what I would want to tell any executive. What you want to do is hunt down, hunt down anything that puts downward pressure on people's willingness to learn, on people's openness, on people's willingness to contribute to the conversation, on people's willingness to speak up. Anything that puts downward pressure on that should be hunted down and destroyed. That way you make progress and safety. You've been listening to Rethinking Safety, 
a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. Our objective for this podcast is to reinvigorate the conversation about safety in mining. This podcast was written and produced by Brady Hayward in partnership with Waveland Creative. Archival audio provided by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales and additional audio by Colin Tyrus. I'm Sean Brady and I'll speak to you in our next episode.